Well, uh, thank you for that. It will be helpful if you could keep uh, Lamentations chapter 5 open. That's where we're going to be focusing most of our time in these next few minutes. Uh, why don't I pray for us as we reflect on this, what, these words. Uh, dear Heavenly Father, please give us clear thinking uh, as we uh, read the message of Lamentations and understand what it means for us today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me ask you two rhetorical questions. The first one is, do you think you have to be in a good mood to come to church? Second question, if you're not in a good mood and you do come to church, do you have to put on a happy face? I would say no and no to both of those questions. To a prominent English evangelical clergyman speaking, and he was reflecting on that horrible Indian Ocean Boxing Day tragedy of 2004. Do you remember when the earthquake hit off the coast of Sumatra? Tsunamis of up to 30 metres uh, formed. It hit the coastlines right around the Indian Ocean. And within not too many hours, over a quarter of a million people were dead. And then there was devastation uh, on top of that galore. And this particular clergyman said that as he watched the images uh, come into his screens about that event... Uh, he, he had tears and he felt mounting anger against God. Why those people, he thought, you know, some of the poorest of the poor live around that region, hadn't they suffered enough already? Well, the following Sunday, this particular clergyman went to church, still filled with these emotions. And he said he did, just didn't feel he could join in with the joyful songs of praise. He didn't feel thankful to God at that time. He felt, in fact, angry with God. Now, listening to this particular guy, he said he wasn't questioning God's sovereignty. He wasn't questioning God's goodness or even his existence. He still knew the God he trusted, but he just couldn't pretend to be joyful and happy on that particular Sunday. Instead, he wanted to pour out his grief. In effect, he wanted to lament or engage in lamentation. Have you ever felt like that? That's not a, I, that is a rhetorical question, but I know uh, many of you and many of us have. I mean, it's interesting that we're doing Lamentations this morning. It's been a very fraught week this past week. Uh, there have been a number of funerals within our very small circle of contacts here. People aged 5 to, through to 85 have passed away. And at each of those funerals, there were Christian believers. How should they feel? And when they come to church today, how are they supposed to feel sitting in church today, wherever they may be, uh, in the Blue Mountains? After all, some people might think, you know, we Christians, we're aware of the good news, aren't we? Jesus loves us. Jesus died for us. We can be saved. We can look forward to eternity with God. Does that mean we should be joyful all the time? Is it unchristian to feel deep anguish and sometimes even anger? What is the Christian response to pain and grief? How should we confront it? Well, at this point, and it's a bit of a plot spoiler, but I think it's a good one, uh, it's worth noting that lamentations and expressions of lament are right throughout the Bible. A lament is a passionate expression of grief or sorrow. And in fact, one of the books in the Bible is called Lamentations. It's just been read to us. It's in the Old Testament. But biblically inspired laments are right throughout Scripture. So the book of Psalms, many of the Psalms are Psalms of lament. And then um, even getting around to the New Testament, you know, Jesus lamented at various times in his ministry. So it seems that lamenting is and can be an appropriate thing for God's people to engage in. But what 
does it and what should it look like? Now, these are clearly not academic questions for us. If we're not lamenting now, I'm sure we will be at some stage in the future. So, let's see what lessons we can learn from Lamentations. We're continuing our series this morning uh, in Old Testament Minor Prophets. We're looking at Lamentations. Uh, you've received an outline on the way in. Firstly, I want to think about Lamentations generally. Then look at one particular section, chapter 5 of Lamentations, and then consider what this might mean for us uh, today. So firstly, the book of Lamentations, which we just had read from, has been described as the darkest book of the Bible. It consists of five poems in five chapters. Each poem is a poem of lament. We don't really know who wrote it. Some think it might have been Jeremiah. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. But it's set uh, in the time after the fall of Jerusalem, after they've been defeated by the Babylonians, and it was a particularly brutal defeat, and when many of the people are off uh, in exile. It comes from that period. And so in these laments or lamentations, the author is trying to come to terms with what's taken place. Loss of Jerusalem, loss of the temple, loss of life, many of them in exile. And each of the poems, each of the five poems in Lamentations has its distinctive emphases. But there are some major themes running through it. Firstly, uh, the obvious one is there is overwhelming grief expressed throughout the book. Chapter 1 uh, starts off with a sense of bitter loneliness and abandonment. Let me read from chapter 1, uh, verse 1. This is the opening words of the book. How deserted lies the city. That gives you a bit of a hint of where we're we going. How deserted lies the city, once so full of people. How like a widow is she, who was once great among the nations. She who was queen among the provinces has now become a slave. Bitterly she weeps at night, tears are on her cheeks. And the further chapters go on to express this sort of grief and bitterness, and it describes bleak scenes. Uh, and you can get a sense of why it's been called the darkest book of the Bible. Now, the Bible also makes clear that the reasons why God's people are suffering here is because it was a result of their ongoing rebellion against God for centuries. Uh, they'd been warned about turning back to God for centuries. They'd resisted, they'd resisted, they'd resisted, they'd resisted. And eventually God allowed the Babylonians uh, to come in and take over uh, as a form of punishment. They'd been warned. They hadn't taken the hint for centuries and centuries. And uh, this is described in the Bible. And the writer of Lamentations actually acknowledges uh, that, the, that his people have sinned and that they're suffering the consequences um, of their wrongdoing. So in Lamentations chapter 1, verse 5, he writes, The Lord has brought her, that's Jerusalem, grief because of her many sins. Uh, but while the overwhelming thrust of the book is lamentation, it's highly articulate, evocative, there are expressions of hope in the book. Perhaps the sharpest expressions of hope are found in the middle chapter, uh, chapter 3, verses 21 to 33. And the first reading, uh, which young Miss Jones read to us, uh, was from that section. Let me remind you of a bit of it. He writes, For no one is cast off by the Lord forever. Though he brings grief, he will show compassion. So great is his unfailing love. For he does not willingly bring affliction or grief to anyone. Scott also referred to that as well in his intro. So there is hope amidst the grief, but I think the thing we need to do with lamentations is not just immediately go to the hopeful bit in the middle without having first felt the weight of the grief which actually dominates the book. 
Now, I mentioned that lamentations are found throughout the Bible. There's the Psalms, many of which are laments. And just let me remind you that Jesus grieved. He wept when Lazarus died. He wept over Jerusalem. He felt anguish in the Garden of Gethsemane. And so it's perhaps um, surprising uh, that a guy called Chris Wright, a noted English uh, theologian and an Old Testament scholar mainly, he has made the comment that we tend not to do lament in Christian churches, by which he means it's not something we're in the habit of doing, expressing lament together when we meet as God's people. And that's probably surprising given its prevalence in the Bible. Now, I guess in traditional services, uh, Often services read through the Psalms sequentially in the year. And if you do that, you certainly get Psalms of lament. But in this service, we're not in the practice of doing that. So we don't. Perhaps there's something rather to rectify there. Well, let's look more closely at one of the particular poems of lament in Lamentations. It's Lamentations chapter 5. And chapter 5, which was read to us, you may have noticed, was entirely addressed to God. It's a prayer. And it commences by urging God to remember and to look. So chapter 5, verse 1. Remember, Lord, what has happened to us. Look and see our disgrace. Now, there's actually something subtly encouraging in this first uh, verse, believe it or not, because uh, what is it that people tend to do when they're in great distress? It can drive them one of two ways in relation to God. Sometimes people in great anguish and suffering seem to move away from God. So one of my uncles uh, fought in the Second World War, well, two, both my uncles fought in the Second World War, but one of them was on Lancasters, which flew out of England deep into, on bombing raids over Germany. And in his particular squadron, uh, most of the planes didn't survive the war. He was in one of the planes that did. And I think it would be fair to say that his war experience greatly affected him. Now, I like this particular uncle, I liked all my uncles, but I particularly like this one. But sadly, when he died back in 2008, as far as I could tell, he had little time for God. I think uh, the war had impacted him. One of the last books I remember him reading was Richard Dawkins's The God Delusion, which I seem to remember him saying something like that it had confirmed his beliefs. Uh, I think perhaps the tragedy of war at a, as a younger man had pushed him away from God. By contrast, it often goes the other way. I mean, there were many people, a number of men at the church of which I grew up, who were Christians who'd fought in the war who clearly hadn't had that experience in relation to God. They'd stayed close or got closer, I'm not sure. I heard an interview, I watched a video of an interview with a prominent American New Testament scholar by the name of Craig Keener, who's written some really good stuff. Uh, Keener is married to a lady called Medine, who is from the Republic of the Congo, not the Democratic Republic of the Congo, which we all know about here, but the other Congo, which is next door, uh, Congo Brazzaville, it's sometimes called. Anyway, he's married to this lady from the Congo, a uh, very bright lady. She had studied at the University of Paris and got a PhD. And after her PhD, she returned to Congo Brazzaville, where she found herself caught up in a war and found herself being a refugee, this highly educated woman, for 18 months. Uh, I believe her life was in danger. And I think the question was asked you know, of Keener or his wife, how can he believe in God in a world of suffering? To which his wife, who'd been through it all, said, we couldn't have made it without God, she said. We wouldn't have had the strength to, do, uh, to go through those things. You see, that's her suffering had drawn her closer to God. So there seems to be the two ways which people tend to go. But the writer of Lamentations here, he's suffering, but he addresses his prayers to God. It's brought him to God 
which is the encouraging thing here. The question, I guess, is when we go through grief, do we take our grief to God or do we just wallow in it? Um, obviously, it's good to take it to God. And what is it when he, when he says to God, you know, remember and look, what is it that he wants God to remember and look? Well, at least in part, he wants God to note the extent of the suffering they're going through. Many of you, I'm sure, have read George Orwell's classic novel, 1984. Ruth Hillman hasn't read George Orwell's classic novel, 1984. She's shaking her head at me. But many of us have. It's a dystopian novel written by a guy called George Orwell. It's set in a time of a totalitarian regime. And the hero, in inverted commas, of the book is a guy called Winston Smith, who's trying to rebel against the totalitarian regime. But near the end of the book, without giving too much away, he's caught by an agent of the regime, a guy called O'Brien, and he's taken to a place called Room 101. And he hasn't quite gone into Room 101 at this point, when O'Brien, uh, the guy who works for the government, says to Smith, you asked me once what was in Room 101. I told you you knew the answer already. Everyone knows it. The thing in Room 101 is the worst thing in the world. Well, um, for the God's people back in the 6th century BC, their room 101 would have been what had happened to them. The fall of Jerusalem. They had lost their promised land. They were either under subjugation in it or exiled off in Babylon. The temple of the true God had been decimated and family and friends who they might have taken comfort in, many of them had been killed. I mean, every aspect of life has been hammered there. It's their room 101. And in verses 2 and 18, after he said, you know, look and see, these verses are in effect a catalogue of woe. Look at verse 2. Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our homes to foreigners. You know, they've lost the land. We've become fatherless. Our mothers are widows. People have died en masse. Then it goes on to speak of having to buy water in verse 4. Being pursued, verse 5, having slaves rule over them, verse 8, being feverish from hunger, verse 10, women being violated, verse 11, princes being hung up by their hands, Mount Zion being desolate, verse 18, etc. It's pretty descriptive. And I think it's one thing which could be said, it's a very honest poem. Uh, the writer is honest about their suffering, he's honest about his emotions, he's honest about, as we'll see, his people's sin. And he's also honest about God. Firstly, he's honest about what's taken place. We just hear it described. But he's also honest about how he feels about it, his emotions. So in verse 15, he says, Joy is gone from our hearts. Our dancing has turned to mourning. Verse 17, because of this, our hearts are faint. There's no sugar coating here. There's no stiff upper lip. There's no put on a happy face. The writer is real. He's honest. He says it how it is. Similarly, I think it's good for us when we're expressing our grief to God, to be real, not to sugarcoat it. I mean, God knows what we're going through and what we think anyway. Let's just be real and accurate with how we're feeling. Let's express it. Secondly, also, though, uh, he recognises that what is happening is a result of wrongdoing. He's honest about his sin and his people's sin. So in verse 7, he says, Our ancestors sinned and no more, and we bear their punishment. But it's not just their ancestors. He says in verse 16, Woe to us, for we have sinned. He realises there's been ongoing, prolonged, serious, centuries-long, warning, ignoring, wrongdoing, uh, which uh, has, been, has, has led to this. But third, then, he's also honest about God. So he says in verse 19, You, Lord, reign forever. 
Your throne endures from generation to generation. So amidst all this, he recognises God's authority and power. And as such, it's probably no surprise that he eventually finishes his poem with a humble request to God. Verse 21. Restore us to yourself, Lord, that we may return. Renew our days as of old, unless you've utterly rejected us and are angry with us beyond measure. So here the writer honestly, articulately and at length, he takes his pain to God. He asks God to look and then humbly requests restoration. That's what he does in chapter 5. And as I said, the centre of the book, chapter 3, is where there's an even far stronger uh, expression of hope. But as I said, I don't think we want to go to the middle of chapter 3 until we've felt the weight of the whole book. Well, how does this impact us today? Here's my third point, lamentation today. What should we do or what should we not do in the light of this? Well, I think when we are in anguish and great pain, we should, like the writer of Lamentations and like the Psalms and like Jesus, take our grief to God. Uh, to be honest with God, to express the depths of our pain, perhaps to cry out our questions, to confess, should that be relevant, anything, and to ask God to look and to remember and to humbly request assistance, rescue, restoration. Uh, that expression of grief is not a sign of lack of faith. I think it's a sign of trusting God. That's worth thinking about. Secondly, though, we have an advantage over the writer of Lamentations. Because we grieve today if we're grieving this side of Jesus. We still grieve and lament horrendously at times, uh, but we do so with knowledge of the following. We know that the Son of God uh, grieved and wept himself at Lazarus over Jerusalem in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he suffered immeasurably on the cross, something which we just don't get. Uh, so Jesus, the Son of God, gets grief and suffering. He understands it. The writer of Hebrews says in chapter 4, verse 15 of Hebrews, we do not have a high priest who's unable to, symp to sympathise or empathise with us in our weaknesses, but we have one who is tempted in every way, just as we are, yet did not sin. So when we cry out to God, I may not understand what you're crying out, your friends may not, but God does. He gets it. And we also know that thanks to Jesus we look forward as God's people to a time in the future when there'll be no more crying, mourning, sickness or pain. That doesn't make everything great now. It doesn't take away the grief, but it's there. We know that's there uh, awaiting us. A few more thoughts. Thirdly, I don't think we should feel the need as Christians to appear happy all the time. I mean, clearly the good news is incredible good news. So we will, we will be feeling joy about the fact that God loves us, then Jesus died for us and we can look forward to eternity with God. I mean, how good is that? But there is a time for joy and there's a time for pain and grief as well. I don't think we should feel that we have to feel happy all the time or if that we feel down that it's necessarily unchristian. It's not. Jesus wept. Fourth, we shouldn't feel that we need to be happy to come to church. I think we should feel comfortable to come to church however we're feeling, whether we're happy or whether we're sad or whether we're somewhere in the middle. Fifthly, um, if we're not happy and we come to church, we shouldn't feel the need to make ourselves happy. Uh, also, in relation to that, we shouldn't try to make other people feel happy at church. Someone seems a bit downcast. Come on, cheer up. God loves you, you know. I mean, that's the last thing which is going to help people in some circumstances. 
Uh, it may be appropriate to say to someone who's doing it tough, look, you know, can I, I'll pray for you or just to go and sit with them or whatever it is. But, you know, we shouldn't feel the need to make people happy. Sixthly, uh, I, I think this is a pretty friendly church. But, you know, sometimes you might come up here and someone is not as effusively friendly to you as normal. And what you could do, you could think, oh, I'm going to take offence at that, you know. Someone's always isn't being nice to me today. But you just don't know what that person is going through. Um, I heard a story once, and I think this is a true story, but I'm not 100% sure, but let's just assume that it is for the moment. Uh, a, guy, uh, a guy and his children were on a train. They were catching a train, and the father was sitting there, and the kids were you know, yelling, climbing on the seats of the train, fighting, running amok, making a nuisance of themselves. And this is obviously apparent to the people in the carriage. The father's just sitting there looking quite detached. Eventually, someone on the, on the, <laughs> the train... Uh, couldn't bear it any longer and probably said something to the effect of, mate, can you do something about your children, you know? Uh, to which the, the father said, look, I'm sorry, um, we just come from the hospital where my wife and their mother has died. I guess none of us know how to react. And you sort of, with that bit of information, that entire scene has transformed, you know? Um, so similarly, you know, if, if someone is a bit down or isn't as friendly as, as, as sometimes they are, there could be a very good reason for it. Now, often we'll know about it, but not always. Sometimes people suffer about things we know about. Sometimes people are suffering about things we don't really know about or we don't have the... He hasn't thought of, whatever. So I think, you know, let's take it easy on others if they're not always, you know, super friendly. Um, and seventhly, and perhaps this is something we should do in church, but we can certainly do it in private, it'd be good to pray prayers of lament at times. It's good to pray th prayers of thanksgiving to God and we can, you know, fit in with that. But sometimes prayers of lament are helpful for people. And if you feel you'd like to pray a prayer of lament, perhaps this afternoon, Psalm 13. That's pretty easy to remember. Psalm 13 is a good prayer of lament. You might want to go home and uh, pray through that. Well, let me conclude. Uh, the writer of Lamentation in Lamentations chapter 5 is really basically saying, remember us, Lord, this is horrible, restore us. And I think uh, the big idea that we can have, get from Lamentations, uh, this side of Jesus, is to know that we too uh, can cry out to a God and we know we're crying out to a God who cares. Let me pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, uh, we know there's such incredible joy in life, but there's the absolute depths as well um, at times and sometimes frequently. Lord, we pray that uh, we would give thanks to you and rejoice, but also be able to lament and take our grief uh, and our pain to you. Um, Lord, help us to know that we can always cry out to you, that we can be honest with you and that we can cry out to a God who cares. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.